Okay, Marcus. Yes. Do you like deconstructing movies from a litany of lenses mostly focused on uh, eschatism, catechism, uh, leftism, and seeing how the way in which they intersect? Fair enough. But do you like that me and John? Hey, John, are you there? I'm here. John, do you like looking at films and with a lens of intersecting race, religion, politics, and the way that they intersect and if they intersect and how they should intersect or why they should intersect? Hell yeah. That's wonderful. And I don't want nobody to go to hell. That was something that ICP re- revealed when they when they revealed that they were a Christian rap band around the revealing of their last tarot card album. They were like, surprise, we've been Christian the whole time. Where if you've been listening to their music, that's not surprising at all. Like, they're the best Christian rap group aside from Scarface. And that's just, that's just non-negotiable. But they were like, we don't want no Juggalos going to hell. I don't want none of y'all to go to hell. At least if you listen to this show. So if you're hearing all three of us, that means it's probably safe to say that this is Popcorn Eschaton, the Zebras in America podcast sideshow, where Scott Thorpe, that's me, and John Arminio, the comic that's book me. man from the state next to Maryland, that's Pennsylvania, is we discuss all things movies, religion, politics, and such. But we decided for Black History Month to look at some films that have a black lens. And also we thought it would be dope to have Marcus, my co-host of Zebras in America, come by to talk. So, uh, Marcus, who is you, player? Chillin'. Marcus Penn of Penland Empire. Um I run a film site. I've been doing it for over 14 years. Uh, as Scott also said, I have a podcast. And then there's other just online platforms that I'm just kind of the third Mike slash Jim Norton to someone's Opie and Anthony. I guess that's kind of a bad comparison, but whatever. You know, Pink Smoke, Wrong Reel, uh, stuff like that. So, yeah. John, what piece of cinema will be will we be discussing today? Uh, we're going to be talking about the 1973 Ivan Dixon directed uh, incendiary satire slash spy slash insurgency film The Spook Who Sat by the Door yeah so tell me a little bit about it um yeah so it was adapted uh, from the uh, Sam Greenlee novel of the same name and it's about uh, a Well, really, it's a a senator looking to win an election decides to criticize the CIA for having no black agents. And in response, the CIA, in a blatant demonstration of tokenism, decides to hire a black agent just to say, hey, we have one. And through a fairly um, humiliating recruitment process, they hire Dan Freeman, uh, played with enormous depth and charisma by Lawrence Cook, who proceeds to learn all he can about insurgent and anti-insurgent tactics from the CIA, and then returns to his home in Chicago and employs those strategies as he recruits 
a guerrilla army uh, to, to basically to wage a rebellion against the United States. And that, and what what's your experience with this film? Um, I can't remember where I heard of it first, but I'm I'm sure it was on uh, several movie podcasts that I listened to that that talked about it, and it sounded fascinating. Um, and so I I sought it out. It's not easy to find in a in good condition, um, because I guess it's pretty controversial or what have you. Um. I did kind of want to talk about it um, when I did that big um, spy movie episode with um, Pink Smoke with Bill Scurry and John Cribb, but I also didn't want to squeeze it between, like, Three Days of the Condor and Marathon Man. Like, it seems like a movie that deserves its own episode. So it's been in in the back of my mind to talk about for a while. Um, so so I'm, I'm happy to get it to get the opportunity to talk about it with, with uh, you gentlemen. And um, it also, just thinking about it, made me take a look at um, Ivan Dixon's previous film, Trouble Man, which is just a real fun... Um, I guess you you would call it a exploitation film, um, but it's not really that exploitive. It's just like a fun movie about a badass... <laughs> doing cool stuff in in, in the city so, but anyway yeah and i found out about the movie it's one of those things where like we live in a world now where for the most part if you want to watch a movie you have access to it but i had heard about this movie for years from like songs and like talking to people but i couldn't find a copy of it and then bam was doing this uh, movie band, the Brooklyn Academy of Music. They have a great theater series. They were doing a special on countercultural black movies around the same time that Afropunk came out. And I basically got tickets to go see every movie that was there. And I went to see this movie and I was like, oh crap, this movie's insane. This movie is so wild. It's so good. And I understand why why nobody wants anybody to see this movie because it's incredibly subversive. It's like if Putney Swope was good, you know what I mean? Um, well, well, so, well. What? I, I hear what you're saying. No, it's a good movie. I, I, it's interesting because those two movies do get, they're always kind of associated with each other and brought it together. It is a better film than Put, Putney Swope. Correct. I, I think it has the edge, essentially, just because at the end of the day, the filmmaker is is black and it comes from a black uh-huh. voice. Whereas I like the movie Put- Putney Swope. Sure. But, but the vibe of Putney Swope, it's almost like it's it's like Vice before Vice, where it's like a white guy is doing is kind of conducting something about black people that's very sometimes cynical, satirical, and sometimes you can't help but wonder. It's like. Are you in on the joke with us? Or are you from afar kind of observing us, laughing at us? You know, like that. I think that, that that'll always be my somewhat internal struggle with P- Putney Swope as a black person. Um, but I still do like that movie, like no matter how much internal struggle I, I have. Sure. And for for those listening, Putney Swope is Robert Downey Sr., Robert Downey Jr.'s father. Pretty much only movie. Yes, he like made other things, but his like only full length feature. And... No, it's no. About, 
his movies got uh, Eclipse, the Criterion sublabel. Finally, this was years ago. They they released his other stuff. Oh well, it, 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 but it's like his most. Well, it, it's one of those things that like everybody. Knows. His other stuff was really difficult to find. Like Robert Downey Sr.'s films are the kind that for years you could only see them at like anthology film archives at Sunday at eleven a.m. Kind of thing. you know what I mean? He was he was in that same conversation with like Jonas Mikas or folks like that. You, you know what I mean? Again, Jonas Mikas is better than Robert Downey Sr. Oh, he is. Let me be clear. I was not trying to compare the two. I was just saying they get mentioned in the same breath and kind of rolled in the, in, in, in similar circles. Okay, so let me rephrase, even though, even though I'm dealing with a cold. Robert Downey Sr.'s most well-known movie is Putney Swope about a black executive... Uh, through a comedy of errors given the given the head of a company so it's got similar vibes yeah it does comes from similar times and both are hard to find movies well n- not anymore uh putney swope no. y- yeah you can watch that on like pluto and and tubi but spook, spook is set by the door uh that is not the case no you know i, I was going to say similar to what you know when you were saying it was always one of those movies that people assumed I knew and had saw. And I guess if you're into, you know, if you consider yourself a cinephile or a movie guy, whatever, you eventually, you realize, oh, I don't think I've seen that movie because there's a lot of movies. So this was like post-high school, post-college, during the MySpace era, someone started talking to me in a MySpace chat in a familiar way as if I had seen it. And his MySpace moniker was Dan Freeman, and then I realized I, at a certain point, I was like, hey, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I actually, I know the movie, but I haven't seen it. And then I eventually was like, why don't I rectify that? So it, it, it took me a while to see it. And I think, I'm not going to be, oh, it's ahead of its time. But the movie is very prescient. Like, I was just, just before we, I got on to record with you guys, I was kind of complaining to two of my closest friends. We were having a group chat about how this presidential election, Joe Biden or any president does this. It's not the first time, you know, but when it's time to meet with different communities, oh, it's the Asian community, whichever one it be. It could be Chinese American, Filipino American, whatever. It's like, let's meet with the local politician, councilmen, engineers, doctors. Same thing with Latinos. Same thing with, you know, other communities. But when it's black people, let's bring, literally, let's bring the bucket of fried chicken into this makeshift barbershop that didn't exist 24 hours ago. And, you know, get down and talk to Jive. And I can't not help but think of shit like the spook that sat by the door because it, it's a similar thing. Oh, we need a black vote. Let's kind of pander and cater. Um, and yeah. So sorry. What, for are the you, what are you referencing in the movie? Well, what I'm referencing is, well, in I mean, John, I, I didn't want to repeat myself, but John gave the bi- the kind of like quick little bio that you'd read on the back of the VHS box where. You, you have a presidential candidate who's who's trying to get the black vote and he goes and does a thing and starts a program where those you know black people are are trained for this program and one guy excels but still it's just this whole idea of like instead of treating back black people almost like humans it's like a cog in the wheel or, or kind of a well let's do this to get this like this weird transactional thing just to get something from us and that just kind of relates to specifically the Democratic Party and how they have been pandering to us 
since 1992 up to now on you know and they just up the ante every four years how do you, how do you think that's going I, I i'm a little concerned i'm very worried about what's going to happen next next year and i think part of that is, is on the dems you, it ain't it ain't all maga it ain't all conservatives and right wing and white nationalists like a lot of it is the Dems fumbling it themselves, you know. And like I said, I, I can't be the only person that notices, hey, every other community subgroup, sub, like, demographic, like I said, you speak with people that hold a certain title. I'm not trying to just because you're an engineer or a doctor or a councilman or whatever, it doesn't make you better than anyone on this podcast right now or an engineer, but it does speak volumes when it's just like, let's go to the barbershop and start, you know, changing the way we talk and eating fried chicken it's very almost it's like seriously i don't know yeah i think it's a real you know old disconnected previous generations like way of trying to communicate to people who 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 represent their their voter base and yeah, it comes off as cloying and, and pathetic. Like I, I, it it doesn't even have to be an ethnic group. You know, I I think back a lot to when, like in twenty sixteen, when Hillary Clinton said Pokemon go to the polls, and it did that just like, and just her the expression on her face was like, I just nailed it. I got this. And it, it, I think it just speaks to this this completely disconnected um group of democrats that are that have have no identity and have no knowledge of what their base actually wants or needs or even if they care. And I think that's perfectly encapsulated in this this opening scene of this movie where, you know, he the, the senator is in trouble because he gave a law and order speech and that um a- angered his his black constituents and that that's something that democratic um candidates are still like trying to balance like they're trying to pretend uh to to be on the side of black communities in this country but they also refuse to speak out against like police persecution of those communities Biden specifically, I mean, post-presidential, post-vice-presidential. We all know his history. We don't need to get into that. But I I do harp on, I feel like my wife is sick of hearing this, but it's like even his backstory, like, you know, the fact that you're mentored by a guy like Strom Thurmond is is pretty insane. And it's that we're expected to just always kind of call him Uncle Joe and chum it up with him if, you know, I'm just saying we have enough evidence that donald trump is a piece of shit but i always say it's like if we discovered that donald trump's political mentor was strom thurman we would not hear the end of it but whenever you bring it up with joe biden it's ah well whatever and then somehow it just gets brushed away and i just feel like at the end of the day sometimes we're we as in black people we're always the most expected to kind of like put aside our morals and just vote blue and shut up like every other community gets to be like well what about what about what about but when it's us like come on just vote for us come on I wasn't and aware. I, I wasn't aware that when we were finally, well, we when our, when my previous two generations ago were given the right to vote, I didn't realize it was conditional and that we were only supposed to vote for one side. 
And I'm saying this as someone who does not like Republicans, by the way. I know I'm being very confusing right now, but at the same time, I'm not. You know what I'm saying? But anyway. No, it's it's absurd that the best two candidates in the country are Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Like, that's that's not yeah. a choice. But that's the thing. Those are not the two best candidates. Those are the two candidates. Yeah. And when Donald Trump wins in a few months, which I think there's a very high likelihood of him doing, a lot of Democrats are going to be surprised. And they're going to be like, oh, no, there's no way that this could have happened. We nailed it. Bitch, no, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess, um, you know, bringing it back to, to the film, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about just watching this movie is that um, Dan Freeman is so good at what he does, and, and he breaks down his strategy for an American insurgency yeah. So logically and clearly, and it made me think, like, how hasn't this happened? Because it, it seems like there's enough, like, poor, frustrated people in America that at some point they're going to organize in in a much more violent and national way. And, and especially after, you know, like the, the murder of Fred Hampton... Well, I was just going to, wow, I was just going to get into that. I mean, I mean, to cut yeah. you up, but we have our reasons. I mean, the murder mm -hmm. of Fred Hampton is one of the reasons why there haven't been these insurgents or whatever, these these up, up, uprising. You always got to look look within. There's always, there's like, there's, there's always the anti-Dan Freemans. There's always folks that are easy to kind of like, you know, rats, operatives to kind of infiltrate. And uh, I don't know how deep. I want to get, I don't want to insult anyone, but I, I do think that at the end of the day, black folks, specifically black Americans are very trusting with, with, with one another, just in general. So it's easy to kind of like plant someone. I mean, history has only shown this from the civil rights movement to the infiltration of the Black Panther Party. It just, it is what it is, you know? The murder of Fred Hampton. The murder of Fred Hampton, yeah. You know, I, I just, uh, there it's one of those things where on one hand, the solidarity and love that black Americans have for each other, the blind solidarity and love that they have for each other is great, but at the same time, it is a little and has been detrimental. But it's so tough to even bring this up. And trust me, th this is half the story of my life. When you question something that's black, or you don't want to immediately support something that's black or don't want to immediately like someone who's black. There's that fear of being called the sellout or a coon or an Uncle Tom, which actually Uncle Tom for those that don't know, is, has always been used incorrectly. But you know what I'm saying? Like a black person, especially a modern black person, the last thing they want to be called is like Uncle Ruckus or Un Uncle Tom. So they just kind of are, are silent on certain things because, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of layers there. And I think I think this movie is, is so layered in, in showing those relationships and that conflict because when Freeman is in the CIA, he seems to be playing into that. Like, he's deep cover for himself, even as he's training, and yeah. has to, like, hear that abuse yeah. from his fellow recruits. And then towards the end of the film, you see that as he's, as he's trying to flip his friend, who's a police officer, Dawson, and, and 
they sort of like have a like a sort of a, a come to Jesus moment where they're they're diametrically opposed philosophies on, on how to achieve freedom are like set against each other and so you know freeman's journey from like taking on the identity of the people that of a person that he thinks white recruiters want to to somebody that's going to take down the establishment i think is is fascinating and compelling Mm. yeah that's a good point you know yeah so that's that's another thing too there's always been even throughout history when people on paper, essentially, they're on the same page, whether whether it be liberation of black people or equal rights for black people. Even people that both preach that couldn't be on have different ideologies. I mean, I guess the most famous one is Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. I remember, like in elementary school, there's that famous picture of the two of them shaking hands. I thought the, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. But then you read you read the autobiography autobiography of Malcolm X, or you talk to people who were alive when they were both alive, like my father, like my grandparents. And, and, and you learn that, you know, it's not, not only did they have different ideas how to do stuff, they weren't the biggest fans of each other. There was no hate. They didn't hate each other, but they definitely, there was a reason you didn't see them together as much. You know what I'm saying? And then it goes back before that, you know, Marcus Garvey, my namesake, Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois had their issues. W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington had their issues. So it, it goes back, you know, to the early 1900s, to the early, to, to the late eight, 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 1800s. And I think a lot of that stuff is kind of indirectly or directly amplified in the spook who sat by the door. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it, it is pretty, I don't want to call it nihilistic, mm. but um, uh, it, it doesn't speak too well of the, the film's view of the future of this country is that Freeman and Dawson end up fighting and... Um, I think killing each other because uh, yeah, Freeman ends up with a, a gut shot and you don't see him die, but he's he says like mm-hmm. you know condition red, and you know we win or we die, and so the fact that those two viewpoints can't come to any kind of consensus, uh, it, it does not result in any sort of happy ending for sure. Man, yeah, damn, I haven't yeah, there's a lot to this. I haven't thought about this movie in a long time until. Scott asked me to do this episode, so I rewatched it. I mean, I haven't watched it in years. Um, but it's something I've seen a bunch of times in my late, mid-20s through my early 30s. So it just has, like, as you can tell, I'm just kind of rambling on a little bit. It's just like the wheels are are working and moving. You know, I think it's also important to talk about who directed this. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, actors who are also directors, there's certainly nothing... New. It wasn't even new in what was this? It's 1972. It wasn't even new in the 60s or 50s or 40s, right? But I think in the case of Ivan Dixon, he was just so known for television. And like, fa- I don't know if it's well, yeah, like fa- family friendly, you know, t- t- uh, television. Uh, I think it was Hogan's Heroes, right? I think that that's that's the show he yes. was most known for, right? And, you know, he's done other t- television, too, but he was, like, a television star, and he was just kind of, like, the non-threatening, like, supporting character who's just always there. He, he was a clutch actor. And it's almost like he was just, like, a different person when it came to the movies he directed and sometimes starred and acted in. You know, it always fascinated me. It was one of those things where I never... I knew who Ivan Dixon was. 
especially in my family. He actually dated my grandmother uh, after she had divorced my grandfather. Um, oh, wow. So there's always, yeah, exactly. So there's always that little weird uh, indirect connection uh, I have with him. But it's one of those things where I was aware of the show, Hogan's Heroes, obviously. I never really watched reruns, but putting together just like, oh, this is the same guy. You know what I mean? It wasn't maybe like 10 years ago. I saw a screening of Nothing But a Man that Ivan Dixon stars in, which is really great, by the way. It's a really, really great film. Art house, black film with a young Yafet Koto co-stars in it also. And then Jonathan Demi and Fab Five Freddy were doing the Q&A after for this movie. And then they started talking about his television career. And I was like, oh, man, yeah, that's the same guy. I guess I never really put two and two together. Um, and I just sometimes wonder if the folks that knew Ivan Dixon, the television actor, were even aware at the time or as aware of of his filmmaking. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, he's... The only movies of his that I've seen, I mean, he directed a lot of TV after this, but you know, just looking at Trouble Man and, and looking at the spooky step of the door, like he's obviously an extraordinary, extraordinarily skilled filmmaker. And you know, I you have to think that he kind of, well, he obviously, um, you know, the, the, he's subject to the the racism of of Hollywood and the fact that there's were so few operating black directors at the time mm-hmm. um but he he sort of sacrifices career to make this movie sure um and, and I'm sure he he made it knowing that that might happen um and I'm thankful he had the the courage to do that but I think filmmakers with with such skill and and such a that a distinctive voice shouldn't be asked to make that choice. Sure. I, I like to think he played a role in kind of paving the way for folks now, like Denzel Washington. Yeah. Like, you know, for example, he's a household name. Everybody knows who Denzel Washington is. Um, but no matter what, anytime Denzel Washington directs a film, it's always something about the black experience, specifically the black American experience. And I think that's important to kind of like, let me be clear, nobody's obliged to do it. Like, you're not obligated to do it. I, I don't care. But it, it is nice when someone is, like, essentially a star or somewhat of a household name. But when they do their own personal projects, it's just something that's, I guess, community-based. Like, it's almost for, in, in the case of folks like Ivan Dixon or even, uh, you know, Bill Duke. Bill Duke's another good example. Uh, Den- oh, Denzel right. Washington who do these kind of like essentially black films, you know? I think that's really cool because it, it's, like I said, no one's obligated, but sometimes, especially when there's so few of you in a space, you get to a certain level and you don't want to touch something controversial. You don't want to touch anything, you know, that might ruffle some feathers and you just stay kind of comfortable. And Ivan Dixon clearly was fine with discomfort. You, you know what I mean? I always respected that. Yeah, and um, Scott, one one thing that uh, that I was thinking about watching the movie was that he, when he goes back to Chicago, when Freeman goes back to Chicago, he he gets a job as a social worker, and uh, some gang members like call him social worker as an insult, like you you have no business here, social worker. Um, and then, of course, he uses judo on them and and, and, and recruits them. 
but I, I just wonder, like, have you ever gotten that response in, in your work? Uh, yeah. Um, for the most part, I get a lot of respect and love for the job I do. But yeah, there's there's always the people that are like, oh, you're the kind of motherfucker that gets people's uh, kids taken away from them. Mm. Which again, is not what a social worker does. And also, I would argue that people that lose their children, um, no one's taking away anybody. It's really hard to even work within the system. So for the system to take a child away, you have to be doing a a very apparently problematic choice and again no no one wants to take away kids from their parents no one wants to do that no one there's no one one let's get it straight cps child protective services they're the people that that could take away their people's kids but their job is to make sure that children are safe mm. That's yeah. what they do. They just want to make sure that the kids are safe. Yeah. Again, I'm hesitant to say exactly what my job is, but I am a social worker. Sure. Um, but, like, look, it's hard, and that's not what they, they want to do. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, actually, someone pulled a gun on me once because – they had a bad experience with a social worker once. I saw this guy at a bus station. He's like, oh, you're a social worker? And I was like, yeah, man. And he was like, I fucking hate social workers. I wish they all burned down. And because I was I was being dumb and trying to be a social worker, I was like, I'm guessing the social worker did something or caused yeah. something painful for you. Yeah. And he was like, that's right, but you better get the fuck out of here. And, uh, you know, uh, Brant showed me that they had, uh, that they were with weapon. And I was like, you have a good day, sir. I remember what you told me that. Yeah. Like, mom, wait, weren't you on your way to, to my old studio when that happened? No, that's a different story. I think we were okay but whatever the story you're telling me now you did tell me that but yeah no i've i've been i've had a gun pulled on me several times in oh my well life. Never mind. Oh, okay well thank you for sharing that with us scott I, I appreciate it yeah so yeah it sucks and um sometimes like social workers do get a difficult rap but actually i find more times in neighborhoods that could use social workers as opposed to other tools of the system, mm-hmm. people are more appreciative. So when people find out I'm a social worker and maybe I'm in a neighborhood that is in, you know, not as good of a neighborhood, they're just sort of like, oh, go along, you're mm-hmm. a social worker. You know, but I can't go, I can't really talk more about it without giving more detail into my job. So, sure. Um, 
but which just, is, just but again it's complicated because while this movie is good i don't think that, you know i have trouble with intelligence agencies as a whole mm-hmm. and the, the fact that i'm pretty sure that intelligence agencies are you know the cause of you know governments being upheld or overthrown or again people like um fred hampton being murdered and other revolutionaries probably martin luther king and probably malcolm x probably allegedly maybe fbi maybe cia i don't know i don't know it's all allegedly don't come to my house i'm a social worker um I it, I gotta say just to dip in real quick I gotta say the I'm not gonna start getting into specifics I don't want to you know get too much whatever but going into that rabbit hole of Malcolm X's assassination is pretty insane and this is just and and this is just based off of like public information that's out there you, you know what I'm saying like imagine certain specific names and folks that know you know it's probably some scary scary information you know but anyway. Had to say that, and and one of the things that both the FBI and the CIA are very good at is getting things done via Confederates, and we you you saw that with their uh, domestic operations, but also how they destabilize and toppled governments uh, in other places, um, and so uh, you know that that makes. Uh, I think the the events of this film, you know, pretty uh, compelling, but but it also, you know, it makes me question my own fascination with, with those, with these sorts of movies because you know I'm, I'm a lifelong uh, fan of James Bond. You know, James Bond is name dropped in the first like five minutes of this movie, and I love spy movies. But 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 it's also like. Why do I like this? This like <laughs> romanticization of this t- tool of imperialism. Um, Why do I love Columbo? Like, I love Columbo. I can watch Columbo any day. Mm-hmm. It's satisfying. There's a very satisfying element. Why? To why do we like? We're allowed to like media about things that we're opposed. Mm-hmm. Because spy sure. life is exciting. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, I just interrupted you. My bad. No, but no. not even that. SVU is satisfying, but it's it is the most propaganda thing. But it's like they figured it out. Who you're not going to root against? I'm not going to use the word on this show, but the type of people that they genuinely go after on that show. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Who's going to root for them? You know what I'm saying? And I'm telling you firsthand. Like I'm 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 a prime example of like whenever there's a marathon. I got nothing. I got. I got not, not, nothing to do. Oh, there's like three episodes of SVU on, and you're cheering these people on. But in reality, my personal belief and and, and personal opinions on the police are, are very different than what I'm cheering for when I watch an, an episode of Law and Order. You know. Yeah. And it, I think it is also satisfying indulging in the fantasy of that. Like people in authority are good and want to do good things and are also competent at their jobs. What a fantasy! Yeah, <laughs> right. Because also, the the cops in Law and Order they're like good cops. Mm-hmm. 
and they're like doing good jobs. And again, I don't subscribe to the all phraseology. I don't, as while I do believe in, um, sorry, I'm, I had to take an antihistamine before <laughs> we, sure. we, we met up. So yeah, no, my no head's worries. a little cloudy, but, um, so I'm an abolitionist, but, and I believe in, I don't believe in defunding the police. I believe in refunding the community and reallocating funds so that the branch of the government that protects people does a better job of protecting people. And the way that it exists currently, I don't think does a very good job at most things that involve protecting people. Yeah. Yeah. I think the things that the police are tasked to do, they are not great at doing most of them. And some things they are good at doing. And um, I would much rather have them solving SVU-related crimes than people on the internet that are trying to, mm. like, do to catch a predator-style TikToks. That yeah. like ruined people's lives and have gotten people shot, right? One so, guy killed himself. Right. And that like I don't believe in vigilante justice. Now, in a in a world where prisons are reformed and police is reformed, I believe in systems that exist that would help people and that doesn't mean that people that doesn't mean that we don't like have a place for people that do those crimes to go it just means i don't know why i said that like christopher walken to go um, <laughs> it's just that they're the places should be appropriate yeah and and with the idea that if there is a possibility of redemption that there that redemption be served so people that commit one i would grossly change what punishments happen for substances right but people that go to jail for anything would do that has to do with substance especially use we're going to rehab baby you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. like we're doing yeah. some we're like you know and we have the money for it there's if if we took like uh i was looking at the budget in the city that i lived and if we took one day of police spending, would prob would like pretty much solve a lot of the homelessness issue in our city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like pretty much, and this this scales. This is modular. So like one day, not let's not be crazy. Let's not pretend like that we don't have enemies, and we don't need some guns. And we could talk about the Second Amendment another day. And please, another day when my throat isn't on fire. But one day of defense spending, just one day less, would drastically change the whole landscape of this country and give people so much more resources. Yeah. Yeah. So instead of punishing people for being homeless and making the wages so difficult to have a home having more you know wage equity and house equity and and caps on but i digress 
So the reason why we enjoy watching SVU is because theoretically the types of of everyone dislikes the kind of people that do SVU type stuff. So it is thrilling to see people that do that sort of stuff get caught, even though the system for which it happens is fundamentally flawed. And the system in which we exist is fundamentally flawed. And we can try to force people out of addiction, but it is hard to, especially when, what are we looking forward to? There is yep. a reason, and I think this goes to one of John's questioning as he's gathering his thoughts, as you're allowed to do, is that in areas where there is not a lot of access, there tends to be a use of substances and not a lot of resources for people who want to get out of substances and not a lot of reason why why like if your life sucks and like you don't have a lot of prospects or your life can and you you can choose life sucking and being on really great drugs or life sucking and not being on really great drugs which one are you going to choose yeah yeah and and so you know, um, when Freeman gets to Chicago and he meets up with this woman that he knew before he went into the CIA and her son, Shorty, is dealing drugs and is addicted to heroin and he's trying to get her to in- to interfere so Shorty can maybe get clean and stop dealing. And her response is, like, there's nothing out there for us. So, like, wh- why bother? Why getting clean? What's... What's going to be on the other side of that struggle? Um, and I think that really hits Freeman pretty hard to just see that blatant despair right in front of him. And another thing that we that we really need to talk about, since we're talking about intelligence agencies, and there's a lot of argument that intelligence agencies are the reason why the crack epidemic became such an epidemic, and why the meth epidemic became such an epidemic in in mostly white cultures is the introduction of certain things to the supply chain. And so sometimes it could feel like it is hopeless, that you cannot change, that you cannot Mm. change anything. You know, um, right now on the East Coast, we are, and and on the West Coast, but I'm not sure on the in-between, we are dealing with uh, an epidemic that is gripping the world, and that is the new dope. And the new dope is not really heroin. It is mostly fentanyl mixed with a, a pet tranquilizer called xylazine, also known as Trank, and then cut with a little bit of heroin. And this is completely political and global, right? And like other stuff that they put in stuff, and um, there are there are some interesting pieces of media to watch about this sort of stuff, but I'm hesitant to recommend of it, some of it because some of it is done by problematic people, and also, but you can just like look into it. Now, the reason why this is largely political is so what happened. In the past four years, we we left Afghanistan. Now, where does most of the world's poppy come from? Uh, Afghanistan. Correct. I'm going to assume, so, yeah. So, so, so most of it. So 
it's not surprising that since there's less American presence in Afghanistan and there's less foreign presence in Afghanistan, there's less access to poppy, less access to heroin. Now, the argument is that China, the big bad boogeyman, has brought fentanyl into this country, which is which is interesting as they're very far away and like the, their container ships are really easy to spot. I think it's it's just as good of an argument that it's coming from the south of the border, the north of the border and both uh, oceans. But the other thing about fentanyl is that it is incredibly effective compared to heroin. A very little bit of fentanyl goes a long way. So it becomes an economic thing. And for a while, it was killing so many people because it was so strong and the cooks didn't know how to, how to mess, how to, how to fix the product. So now they started adding this stuff called xylazine because it's a, it's a vasodilator. Um, and it makes the high a little bit mellower, the the, the likelihood of death a little easier and the, um, sorry, uh, the come up, what happens when you withdraw, withdraw less bad, except it also tightens your body. So it's like, it like eats your flesh. So it's like creating like really bad situations. Mm -hmm. And this, a lot of people are arguing, and I'm not trying to be like metal hat, uh, aluminum hat, but they think that this is either at least being supported or allowed by bigger organizations because we have surveillance everywhere. How is how is all of this? How is no one noticing all this dog horse tranquilizer just disappearing? You know what I'm saying? So, so like an organized attempt to destroy the poppy market in Afghanistan by in in by flooding the American market with uh, other drugs. No, no, I think I think that's just a, I think that's just a side effect of Afghanistan not having foreign influence. Okay. The. I believe that the powers that be want drug addiction to exist or, or are at least okay with it because it keeps a lot of people in homeostasis. Mm. Therefore, the world is adapting to demand. I recommend everyone, most cities, you can get Narcan for free. It's like the same thing as carrying an EpiPen. It's really easy to use though it's kind of fucked up that this that the same company that made a lot of money off of oxycontin the sackler family also are trying to patent the narcan um spray but look money's gonna money and you're like scott what does this got to do with this movie it has everything to do with this movie because this is about intelligence yeah this is about control and there's nothing more controlling than a bunch of people that that are hopeless and addicted to drugs. And 
I'll believe that the powers that be are capable of anything. I, mean, I, I keep coming back to like the example of like the, the lead pipes in Flint, Michigan, you know, and it's, it's been known for decades that lead pipes lead to developmental disabilities in children when they drink it. And who are the communities that were exposed to lead pipes and were, and were drinking lead infused water? You know, poor black communities. So, like, yeah, tell me anything, and I'll. It's I will not discount it. Uh, what 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 people are capable of? Like, it's unthinkable until you put it in front of me, and then it's just really fucking depressing. Anyway, <laughs> I think one of the brilliant aspects of this movie is that it uses that attitude towards poor and black communities for its advantage because there is a a heist in the movie where they steal uh, guns and equipment from a military base and then one of Freeman's subordinates says now we go underground and his response is nah it'll be look they'll be looking for everyone except us this took brains and guts which we don't got um, and so at, at least at this stage, no one expects this sort of organized operation um, from inner city Chicago. And, and it uses and Freeman uses that to his advantage. And it just I think it's just such a, a well thought out piece of filmmaking. And why do you think it's so hard for us to find this movie? <clears throat> well, for a while it was. And I, I just think in an indirect way. A black was this does this count as independent film in terms of how it was made i think so yeah like a black independent film yeah. from the early 70s as the decades go on and when things like vhs and dvd and blu-ray dis- distribution become more popular obviously a movie like this is just gonna kind of get lost by the wayside but you know it does have a cult status, so I think, you know, and, and the whole, one of the biggest points of, you know, especially in cult film, is that cult that keeps the movie alive. So I think just through, like, you know, illegal kind of copies of it being passed around and, and stuff like that to it finally being on, on DVD, kind of a bare-bones DVD from back in the day, but, you know. So at some point, we got cut off because of the internet and the future. So we don't know exactly where we were at. But basically, we believe that this movie is hard to find because of the subject matter. Right. Yeah. How certain yeah. movies about certain subject matter become hard to find. This this is a thread that's been going on in movies that on Zebras in America. Back to our first episode with John Wilson when he told us a film about the Catholic Church that you cannot find easily. The Devils, one of my favorite movies. Right. Um, So let's um, let's wrap up. Uh, What is your what are some finishing thoughts about the blank who sat by the door? Can I say that word in this context? It's a movie. Yes, you can't. Why are you asking me? Yes, you can. It's the title of a movie. Right. But there's a movie. No, that's not fair because there's a there's a movie that of all people Quentin Tarantino 
said was very, very inspiring for Django Unchained. That has about the N word in it. What's that? Oh, I know. Well, but that's but that's different. He's trying to find loopholes to say it as much as possible, <laughs> so he could be like, "I'm not. I'm just quoting a movie. I'm not just saying it. I no, no. Right, but like, you know the thing. movie that I'm talking about. Yeah, no, I, I I caught myself for a second. Yes, I know what you're talking about. Yes, but that's different. But even as much as I don't like Quentin Tarantino, it's the title of a movie, so you got to say it. Like Ivan, Di- well, not Ivan Dixon, because this was obviously adapted from a book years before that, but. It was not made for someone to, to blank it out. I think that's another thing about this story, I'm going to say, because it's a book and a movie. It wasn't made to be said, because it was written, I think it was in 1960. Yeah, I, have my, I have my phone right in front of me, but 1968, I don't think he... Th- there was no thought of like, oh, in 60 years, people are going to have a hard time saying that. You know what I'm saying? Just say it, Wh- whatever. Right, because it has a double entendre. Right. Because the word the word spook also yeah. means like a government operative, and yeah. there's a excellent book and and uh, problematic movie called The Human Stain. The book by Philip Roth. The movie I don't remember by who, but you know, without with with giving away everything, Anthony Hopkins plays a black man. Um, in the human stain and if you're confused by that we all were and he the premise essentially is about a professor who gets kicked out of a college for calling students spooks for not being there and then gets fired for racism and then you find out throughout the story that there is some irony there because he is, in fact, a black man passing, uh, largely inspired by the life and tragic life of Anatoly Breuerd. So um, I understand why it's why I guess using this word is OK, even though it, it has been a pejorative word for for that I don't think has been used in a long time. Right. I mean, it's a very confrontational film and makes you question your own values and the way you think about uh, society and racism and government. The human and, stain or the spook who sat by the door? Uh, the spook who sat by the door. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, one of the hardest lines in this, in the movie is um, in guerrilla warfare, winning is not losing. And you're just like, whoa. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, so it makes you questions, you know, how far you're willing to go for the things you believe in. This is thank All you right. guys. I, no, I, I like I like this episode a lot. Yeah, th- thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. No, of course. It. Again, th- thank you for having me. And uh, you know, Betone Zebras will be back soon. And, oh yeah, uh, yeah. Y'all have a great day and. Uh, you know, don't be mean to homeless people.